Our passage comes from Judges, chapters 2 and 3. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Hears, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join with me as we pray? 
Father, it is good, um, even having just heard your word, to pause to pray. Um, for we remember before you that this is not just information. These are not just words that were recorded thousands of years ago. Um, your word is living and active, and as we look at it, you speak to us through it. And so, Lord, we ask uh, that you would do exactly that, that, um, that we would be a people who hear, that you would change us, that you would make us more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, maybe like six, seven, eight, I think I remember one of my favorite passages, and I think I was not alone in this, was Ephesians 6. Do you remember that passage? For those of you who've grown up in the church or are familiar, it's, it's the passage that's talking about a battle. And, and Paul talks about how we are to be battling. And he says, take on the spiritual armor of God. And he talks about this shield. And he talks about this breastplate and the sword. And what seven-year-old wouldn't think it's the coolest thing in the world to know that somehow we're supposed to be battling and we have like superhero armor that we're supposed to get? I mean, it's a very cool passage for a six-year-old. I've been thinking about it recently, actually, because obviously it's not just a passage for six-year-olds. That's not Paul's primary audience, although he's speaking to them as well. And it's worth recognizing what Paul is saying in those verses, that you and I are actually in a real battle. God is doing something extraordinary, something remarkable. He has chosen to rescue this world. He has chosen to do it by, by bringing everyone under Jesus' rule, and he is doing that through his church. And meanwhile, the devil, who is very real, is... is completely against that and seeking to thwart that in every way, which means you and I, if we are part of God's people, we are at the very heart of this conflict. You are in a battle, Paul says. And it's not against human beings, which would be frightening enough. It's against terrifyingly strong spiritual powers in this world who are present and active and seeking to bring us down. So Paul says, you need to be ready to wrestle. You need to engage in this battle so that as they try to bring you down, you are able to stand. He says, you need to learn how to be strong, strong specifically in the strength of the Lord. Paul says, you are in a battle. I bring that up this morning because um, the passage we just read, while we might first feel like there's something that's very disconnected from us, that you know, it seems like it's a bunch of border skirmishes about a Middle Eastern set of nations 3,000 years ago, and it's just so unconnected to 2023 Chicago suburbs. But if we understand it rightly, we need to recognize that the battle that's being described there is the very same battle that you and I are in. See, judges, you can almost imagine what's happening with judges is kind of like an inverted iceberg. You know how with icebergs, you know, it's a cliche that when you see the tip of the iceberg, there's just a little bit that's visible and everything is beneath. Well, what's going on with judges is like that except the opposite. You see something, but there's something above that's way bigger that's invisible. So on one hand, you have Israel against like the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Amorites, but, but there's a deeper, bigger thing going on kind of in a heavenly area. So Israel is not just God's people. I mean, it's not just Israel. They are the people that God has covenanted himself to, the people that God is choosing to save the world through. 
And these other nations, the Perizzites and the Amorites, they are allied to Baals and Ashtaroths who are not just statues. I think we sometimes just think that there's nothing there, but no, there are demonic powers that are involved. Anytime people are being led away from the true God, Satan's work is involved. There are enemies of God that are connected to these nations. There is a spiritual battle that is taking place in Judges that in some ways is hidden from our sight. And we can actually in some ways see those two levels, the, the, the earthly and the heavenly, even in the way that the battle is being conducted. On one hand, yes, there is this military back and forth where it seems like it's going well, it's going poorly, because God's enemies would like nothing less than to crush Israel and destroy God's people and to end what seems to be God's purposes. But there is another battle that they are engaging in that is more dangerous and in some ways more powerful. It's one thing if they can crush them. We, we think about how we even see that opposition today with persecution. In some ways, it's even a better defeat, however, if they can somehow convince God's people to turn away from the true God and actually to serve them. That, that is a victory. So what we are meant to understand as we're looking at Judges is there is this battle of cosmic importance. And it's the battle that Paul tells us that you and I are in right now. When I hear things like that, that Paul says, you are in this battle, I want to know more. I want to understand what it means that we're in a battle, and I, and I want to know what I'm supposed to do. And I think as we look at Judges, God gives us instruction to help us to know. This morning, in some ways, there is just a very simple exhortation that as we look at the battle that's going on here that is supposed to kind of call out to us. And, and is this, the simple exhortation is that you and I are called to fight. If you are a follower of Jesus, you and I need to understand that we are in a time where we are called to fight. If you are someone who is considering following Jesus, you, you need to know that God is calling you to join the fight. There is a fight that we are called to. That's what I hope that we can see this morning, as we kind of see kind of three different elements to this story. So you might have noticed that, that the passage that Jennifer just read kind of has, has two, two elements to it, two parts. The first part, which is in chapter 2, is kind of one that's giving an overview, a summary of a pattern that will repeat itself again and again and again in the book of Judges. And the pattern is something like this. God's people spiritually fail. Like, so if the battle is against idolatry in some ways, against false gods, they fail by doing evil and turning to the gods. And then the second stage is God, in response, hands them over to military failure, where they end up succumbing to those same forces that they have served spiritually. Now they lose militarily. And then part three, as they experience this failure, we see a kind of misery that they are experiencing, a a, a, uh, a sad they call out and cry out to God and then stage four God does something remarkable he sends a judge he rescues them but then stage five they do exactly what they did before rinse and repeat again and again there is failure rescue failure rescue that's the whole story of judges and then we have in chapter 3 the first example of this. There are six major judges where we see this progression, and Othniel is the first. And so I want us to spend time especially focusing on just those verses from three, three chapter, sorry, chapter 3, verse 7 to 11, this single story of Othniel, but use kind of the other as the background 
And, and notice, as I said, three things about this battle, three reasons why you and I are called to fight. And, and the first one is that you and I are called to fight because we are not in a time of peace. We are in a time of battle. So, so 3 verse 7, where our passage, uh, the second passage begins, the one that's focusing on Othniel, begins with the spiritual failure that I mentioned before. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Specifically, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. They, they've now come into the promised land after years of wandering in the desert. They have conquered many of their enemies. They are now settling, enjoying the land. They have homes, and it seems at some point they say, we need to go visit some other of those local shrines and check out what they're doing and maybe join in with them. And it says they are doing this because they forgot the Lord. Do you realize how utterly bonkers that is? I mean, let's just think about this. Within the span of a hundred years, about less than a hundred years ago, your great-great-grandparents were enslaved, or even maybe just your great-grandparents were enslaved to another nation under the rule of other gods and absolutely miserable. And then God comes and raises up Moses, the God who is the God of your great-great-grandfather Abraham, and says, I am with you. And he does utterly unforgettable things. I, I mean, I mean, he fills the land with frogs and gnats. He, he, he makes the land dark. He sends down hail. He divides a sea in half, and the people walk through. And as they get on the other side, he then brings them through, promise, uh, brings them through wilderness, feeding them day after day after day until bringing them into this land. This is unmistakable. Can you imagine growing up in one of those families? And, and, and as a kid saying, Grandpa, tell me the story again. Tell me, tell me the story again of the frogs. Tell, tell me the story again about how the, how the walls came down. You would have grown up on the most amazing stories. And we're not talking about something that's hundreds of years ago. This was something that your great-great-grandparents saw and your grandparents saw. How could you forget that? And it's not just that they forget God. They actually go and turn to the gods of the enemies they have been fighting this whole time. It's like an act of treason that they're doing without thinking. How in the midst of battle could they choose to do something like that? Well, to begin with, I suspect part of it is just they didn't even realize that they were in the battle anymore. They thought the battle was just that military side of things. They, I think, forgot or were not aware that there was a bigger battle, a battle of allegiance to God or to false gods. And so that's part of why they failed. But I also think there's an element where there is just sometimes a gap between what you're told and what feels real. I mean, they've been told these stories again and again, but that's how they feel, right? They just feel like stories, kind of far off and removed. What feels real to them right now is they need to figure out how to get crops from this land. And the people around them have done that for generations. They have figured it out. They have a technique involving their gods that seems to work. That feels real. And so I suppose it's not surprising that they move 
from what they are told to what feels real. What's, what's tragic, though, is if you have been following what chapter 2 says, it doesn't just happen once. Again and again, they cry out, God rescues them. They experience good. God is here. Look at what he does. And then the moment that someone who's leading them dies, they forget again. And they go back. And it's like, how can you keep on forgetting again and again and again? It's, it's bonkers. Except if we are really honest with ourselves... We actually, I think, can, re- can relate a little bit, can't we? Just, if we just think. I mean, don't, don't we understand the problem that we sometimes have about the, the gap between what we are told and what feels real? In the morning when you wake up, what feels more important to you? To check your phone, to check email and the news, or to turn to God in prayer? If you're a parent, what do you feel is more catastrophic or at least deeply problematic for your child to miss church on a Sunday morning or to miss a soccer game where all of his friends are depending upon him? Or say you are in a position where you now have a choice to change your job and there is a position before you that is moving in terms of pay scale and and you might say in honor, it's successful, but it is so incredibly demanding. Meanwhile, you have another job that you could take that's more of a lateral move but allows you to invest more time in others and family. Which one feels like the pathway to the better life? You know what you are told in all of these, but which one feels more real? And, and even as we probably go, how could you forget, don't we know about that? How many times have you, or maybe I'll just speak personally, I can't count how many times I have been finding myself in a time of anxiety where I have prayed and I have felt in some ways hopeless or scared and God has answered and shown me again that he is there for me on my side. And then what happens the next time I'm scared? I don't go, God, God has this. No big deal. No, I, I go down the exact same pathway again. How many times do we forget? Now, my point is not to say that, that Israel is actually sensible here. No, they're bonkers. My point is to say, so are we. And what Judges, I think, is signaling to us by showing us how this just happens again and again. There is failure again and again in this battle is that, that there is something going on inside of us. There, there is, you might say, an evil power, an evil force that is at work in the people of Israel. And if we are honest, we recognize that same force at work within us that seems to be pathologically resistant to the goodness of God. Do you you know what I'm talking about? There there is something inside of us that, that seeks to move us away from God, that does not want to remember, that seeks to forget, that, that moves us towards anything else than trusting in God. There is something going on. We, we have a name for it, right? We, we call it sin, and that's what it is, but that name doesn't mean we understand. It makes no sense, and yet it's there. And it's worth just noticing that and naming that so that we can know what time we are in. That is, we are not in a time of peace. We are in a time of war. In a time of peace, 
we can take the armor off. In the time of peace, we can let down. In the time of peace, we don't have to be on alert. We can just relax and allow things to be. But in the time of war, of course, the opposite is true. You need to be vigilant. And the worst mistake you can make is to confuse one for the other and to think that you don't need to be on alert when you're actually in a time of war. We are not in a time of peace. When the enemy is near, we must be on alert. And what this is telling us is the enemy is so close to us, it is even a part of us. Which means we need to recognize that there is not just a kind of relaxed demeanor that we can have towards the community around us. If, if sin is this force that the spirit of this age that Satan is working through to bring us away from God, we should recognize that what just feels natural in our society is not something that we can trust. If that same force is still in some way at work in us, then we need to recognize that what comes natural to us also should not always be trusted. Because we are in a time of war, we are needing to fight. That is, to not just be passive and allow things to be, but to be thoughtful, to be asking questions about our practices, our habits, to asking, how do I orient my life so that in every way I am serving God? We are called to fight. Because we're not in a time of peace, we're in a time of war. Secondly, as we, we look at this passage, we should recognize that we are called to fight because the stakes of this battle are enormously high. So again, returning to just this, this opening verse, notice, of, sorry, of 3 verse 7, notice how it's described. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I think in our day, we're starting to use that word again. I feel like for decades, that word evil kind of seems to be almost out of fashion, intolerant. But I think we're starting to recognize again that there's a place for it. That, that when someone is, is beaten and humiliated because of the color of their skin, that's not just unpleasant. That's evil. When a child is sexually abused, that's not just a matter of opinion that some people don't like. That is evil. Evil is a real thing. And when a people that God has bound himself to, that he has cared for again and again, a people that have promised themselves to God, when that people turn their back on this God and choose to serve God's enemies, that is evil. They probably don't feel like that. It is right in their own eyes when they're doing it, but it says it is evil in the eyes of the Lord, and his opinion is the only one that ultimately matters. And so we see what he does in response. Therefore, the anger of the Lord, verse 8, was kindled against Israel. When God is angry, it's not angry in the way that we think of. It's not him like flying off the handle, going out of control. What God's anger is, it is the righteous response to evil. It is what has to happen. Think about it. If, if evil is not dealt with in that way, it's trivialized. If, if someone looks at the Holocaust and says, no big deal, that's horrible. Evil needs to be responded to truthfully, justly, with rejection and opposition. And that's what we see in God. God responds rightly in anger. And, and what does he do? He he hands them over to the very consequence of their action. They 
abandon God. They seek to find out what life apart from God is, and so God gives them an experience of what life not under his rule is. Now, notice like the symmetry. In verse 7, it speaks of how they served the Baals and the Asherah. So what does God do in verse 8? It says, he sold them into the hand of Cush and Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cush and Rishathayim eight years. They want to serve the other gods. God gives them over to the king who is those gods' representatives. He allows them to experience the logical outcome of the choices they have made. And the logical outcome of the choices they have made of turning from God is absolutely awful. That name, Christian Rishathayim, is almost certainly not the person's real name. It can be basically translated Mr. Dark Double Wicked. I mean, that's, you know, so in other words, he's not a good guy, right? Like, I mean, he's not just wicked. He's double wicked dark. He's, he, there's, there's no kindness in him. There is utter tyranny. That's what God's people experience as they move from God to these other idols. The, the previous chapter 2, verse 14, when it's kind of giving the, the picture, gives us, I think, a really good snapshot of what God's people experience. It says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. Now, that idea of plundering is, is caring nothing about the person, only caring what they can get out of that person. This we're meant to understand is is where idols go. There is not a single power that is opposed to God that cares about our well-being. And anytime we turn away from God and entrust ourselves to service of anyone or anything else, we will find that all it is is plundering us for plunder. It is just using us and destroying us and devouring us in the process. That's not just what Israel experienced. That is always the logical outcome of seeking any other God besides the true God. So you might say, if, if you seek the bale of money, you will never feel like you have enough. Every day you will perhaps be checking your bank app to make sure you understand what's going on with expenses. Every expense will feel almost painful. You will rarely be able to enjoy the fruit of your money because you are being devoured. If, if you seek the bale of success, you will always be afraid of failure. You will work harder and harder and harder, but never feel like you have fully accomplished things. Or if somehow you reach your goal, you will get there and feel like it is empty and you're missing something. Or if you choose to serve the God of a family, you, your life will be dominated by anxiety of all the threats that you know threaten your kids. You will never be at peace. And meanwhile, they will be crushed by the awareness that your happiness depends on them being okay even when they are not. See, these are the stakes, and they're enormously high. Whenever we find ourselves serving any other God but the true God, we do not find some sort of power, some sort of thing that cares for us, that's merciful, that's kind. What we find is a plunderer who plunders. We find that inevitably we are serving the doubly wicked that devours us and uses us and puts us to an end. Which means there's a paradox here. 
If, if we just decide to be passive, if we feel tired by the idea of the battle, if we just allow things to happen naturally, that is the certain pathway to exhaustion. Because we will find ourselves moving towards what ends up spinning us out after plundering us. Meanwhile, if we, if we choose to fight, if we seek to maintain fidelity, to cling to the God who loves us, what seems at first tiring is actually the pathway to rest because that's what God does. The God who rescues from Egypt is bringing people into freedom. The God who brings them to the land is saying, I am doing this to bring you rest. The pathway of fighting is the pathway to rest. We are called to fight because the stakes are enormously high. So, you and I are called to fight because we are in a time of battle. You and I are called to fight because the stakes are high. And, and third, you and I can fight because the victory is assured. The victory is assured because we have a God who is unceasingly committed and unstoppably powerful. So... There is a sense that just those first two verses of that section, 3, verse 7 and 8, make a nice, complete story. Um, God's people betray God. God hands them over to the consequence of their action. They experience justice, the end. That, that would be appropriate. That would be a good end. But, but that, of course, isn't how things end. We, we come across a second, utterly inexplicable moment in this story. And that is that despite everything, God shows grace. So verse 9, we're told, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Notice what it doesn't say. When the people of Israel said, what have we done? And they throw away their idols. When the people of Israel recognize their sinfulness and place their faith in God, none of that is described. All they're doing is basically moaning out, saying the word, help. And yet, what does God do? It says, he, he raises up a deliverer, one who will rescue them, who will bring them out of the misery that they have experienced due to the consequences of their action, one who is going to restore them to the way things are supposed to be. So it says at the very end of our passage, they experience rest. Now, why, why would God do this? Well, we're told a little bit previously in, in 2 verse 19, it says that the Lord, sorry, 2 verse 18, the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. I hope you realize how easy it would have been for God not to have been that way. I mean, you and I know what it can be like where it's, it's entirely possible at times to just kind of disconnect ourselves from suffering when we just don't want to feel the pain of knowing someone else is suffering. We can turn our eyes away. And God would have had every right to do that towards a people who have just utterly betrayed him and rejected. But what does he do? He keeps watching them. And as they are suffering, he allows himself to grieve. The God of the universe, perfectly content, has compassion towards this wayward, faithless people. And he responds in love. And, and the only explanation we can have for it, because it doesn't just happen once, it happens again and again. Every single time God's people leave him, every single time they cry out and God answers, what we are meant to see is for, things, for reasons we will never fully understand, we have a God who once he commits himself to people, he is un 
unceasingly committed to them. That our God loves with an everlasting love. And the people that he calls his own, he will not let go. And in addition to this, we also see that our God is unstoppably powerful. So, so we see God raising up a deliverer. One of the first of the, the judges is the term sometimes used, but not a judge in terms of the courtroom judge. A judge is someone who's making things right. And enter Othniel. Now, you might remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about Othniel. Othniel was the, the relative of Caleb who kind of led a charge to take a city and was given Aksa as his wife ultimately after that. And here we get Othniel again, but I have to just acknowledge something. This is, this is a boring story. I mean, Othniel, like, is there anything interesting about Othniel? I mean, like, think about all the other cool stories. I mean, like, if you grew up going to Sunday school, you know the cool judges. Like, there's the super strong Samson. That's awesome. There's Gideon, the military technician. That's pretty cool. Ehud is left-handed. Okay, fine. Even Shamgar, this guy who has, like, one verse, is able to, with an ox code, kill hundreds of people. That's kind of cool. Othniel, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. That's it. We, we get nothing else about him. We know that he's faithful from before, so he's a very flat character, right? And then, and then the story itself, right? Um, let, let me tell you the story. Verse 10, he went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. The end! Growing up, uh, well, not growing up, our kids sometimes will talk about Certain superheroes, like Superman, are OP'd, you know what I mean? Overpowered. Like, they don't really have any flaws, so they throw in kryptonite just to make it so that there's some kind of story. Or like, if you ever watched Voltron as a kid, whenever they form Voltron, you know they win. It's not interesting when they're overpowered. And here's an example of super overpowered. The Spirit of the Lord is on him, and he wins. The end. But that's the point, isn't it? That's what we're supposed to understand. Othniel, it doesn't matter whether he's super strong or left-handed or whatnot. All that really matters is that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him and he is going to submit himself to God. Because when the Spirit of the Lord is on someone and someone is faithfully submitting to God, evil does not stand a chance. Look, this is, this is not like a battle of the titans between two equally matched. This is the God of the universe against these puny other spirits that cannot hold a candle to him. For them to try to stop God is, is akin to like someone wanting to stop a hurricane by blowing at it in the opposite direction. It's nothing. See, what we're supposed to understand by this is all that matters is if God is there. If God is on the side of someone and they are following him, there is victory. It is assured because God is unstoppably powerful. So we know Othniel is going to die. He dies, it says, at the very end of our passage, and we know what that means, that there's going to be failure again, because that is the repeated pattern. But what we see, we see a glimpse here of a future solution, because we are shown here in this story that if we have a God who is unceasingly committed, and we have a God who is unstoppably powerful, then somehow in a way that we won't be able to see right now as we see Israel that just seems so hell-bent literally on failure. We don't see how it's going to work, but somehow victory is assured. 
And we understand now in a way that judges didn't how that victory is assured, don't we? Because we, we know that there is going to be a greater Othniel that God is going to raise up. Someone who from his very, even before infancy, was already filled by the Spirit. Someone who perfectly in every way submitted himself to the Father. We know that in Jesus we see the unceasing commitment of our God and the unstoppable power of our God coming together in the cross as Jesus lays down his life and in doing so destroys Satan, destroys the force of sin that we are enslaved to, destroys death itself rising again from the dead. We can be confident that victory is assured because Christ has already won. That's why we can fight. And that brings us back to the passage we began with, Ephesians 6, because Paul wants us to understand that even though this has happened, even though Jesus has won, we are still in a time of battle. Satan has been dealt with a death blow, but he is trying to do what he can until Jesus returns. We are in a time of battle. And, and though on one hand you and I already, our old self has been crucified in Christ, that, that force that seeks to oppose God has already been dealt a death blow, and yet Paul says you need to keep putting that self to death. He reminds us, look, the stakes are high. Do you remember your former way, how it led to shame, how it led to just being devoured? Do not go that way. Fight. But, but now, now the fight instruction is different from in Judges because now, now we know we have someone that is just so utterly trustworthy. Someone who, like Othniel, leads the charge, but unlike Othniel, is not ever going to be defeated. In fact, he has already won. And more than that, he gives us his own power. He gives us his spirit. He equips us with the divine armor, of the shield, the sword of the spirit, the breastplate of righteousness. What that means is when we seek to fight, we don't need to be afraid of failing. Yes, there is within us still a weakness. Yes, there is within us still a resistance to God, but there is something more powerful within us in the Spirit of God. And that means as we seek to obey, as we seek to wrestle the schemes of the devil, as we seek to wrestle the temptation, you and I can know that we will see victory. Maybe not immediately. These battles will last long, but certainly we're called to fight. Fight because we are in a time of battle. Fight because the stakes are high. Fight because victory is assured. How, how do we fight? Well, hopefully by this point you're starting to recognize something, and that is even though you're seeing two different bulletins, and it seems like we're talking about two different series, we're actually in the end only talking about one series. What we've been talking about in Habits and what we've been talking about in Judges is all telling us about this one thing, and that is there is a battle. And when we're talking about habits, we're talking about there is a way that you and I can engage, that we can look at our lives and seek in every way by the power of the Spirit to seek to follow our God. And I encourage you to join with me as we continue to fight together. But even right now, the, the step that is right for us to take is to turn to our God, the one who has saved us 
the one that we never want to turn away from, to turn towards him in confession and asking for help, knowing that he always hears our prayer. So let's just spend some time in that, turning to our God for help as we engage in this battle. And in a couple of minutes, I will lead us in prayer together.